Lord, I pray that you'd come right now too as we open up your word. This message has been very tough to put together, Lord, you know. And I just pray that it would be clear. I pray that you'd guard me from error. I pray that you would speak through your word and that each of us would be strengthened and encouraged and leave here with a bigger picture of all that you promised to be to us through Jesus Christ. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, here's what I want us to talk about this morning. There's a misunderstanding that I think lots of people have about what it means to trust Jesus, about what the Christian life is. And I want to picture it this way. Let's kick the first slide up on the screen. Um, Picture your life. It's like your life's got all kinds of different categories. Okay, like it might be work. And marriage or single, depending on, you know, where you're at, family, maybe parenting, entertainment, finances, geopolitics. You'll see in a moment why I put that one up there. Sex, sexuality, spiritual concerns. So your life has got like a series of of areas that are important to you. Every every one of our lives is like that. And, And many people think that what it means to trust Jesus is that you trust him for your spiritual concerns. So you, you have faith in Jesus for that. So we're going to kick up the next slide. Boom. Okay, so there's faith in Jesus. So your spiritual concerns like, am I forgiven for my sins? Am I going to heaven? Am I going to avoid hell? And so lots of people think that what it means to be a Christian, what it means to trust Jesus, is that you trust him for your spiritual concerns. That's what faith is about, spiritual concerns. Faith doesn't have a whole lot to do with these other areas. Faith is about spiritual concerns, whether you're forgiven or not. Now, this morning, I believe God wants to show us from his word that faith in Jesus Christ is much, much more than just about those spiritual concerns. As amazing as it is that we can have those spiritual concerns addressed, right? I mean, it's huge. And if we did, couldn't have those re, uh, dealt with, nothing else would matter. But it's huge that we can be forgiven for our sins and know that we are going to be in the presence of God Beholding him, worshiping him, loving him, being loved by him forever, that's an amazing thing. But faith in Jesus Christ is much more than that. What God promises to do for you is much more than just that. And that's what I'm praying we're all going to walk away with today, is just having our minds enlarged, our vision opened up about all that Jesus Christ wants to be and to do for us. So let's turn to Isaiah chapter 30. And if you need a Bible, like we always say, go ahead and raise your hand. We want to bring one to you so that you can look along with us as we work through these chapters. We're going through the book of Isaiah. By the way, chapter 30 of Isaiah is on page 590 in the Bibles that we're passing out. Page 590. Who is Isaiah? What is this book? Isaiah was a prophet in the Old Testament, wrote around uh, 700 B.C. at that time period. And God specially gifted Isaiah, like all the Old Testament prophets, to receive and speak and write God's very words. So when he spoke, it was God speaking. And so what you hold in your hands here in the book of Isaiah is God's very words, which is true of the whole scripture. But I want to highlight that for the truth of Isaiah. So that's what we've got here in Isaiah chapter 30. Now, to understand what what Isaiah wants to show us about what it means to have faith, that it's not just spiritual concerns, we've got to start by thinking about 
What situation did Israel face at this time? What was going on with Israel at this time? What was her life like? And so we've got this. So the top picture, just like the one I showed you earlier, that's exactly what Israel's life was like. She had all these other concerns. And she did have some kind of faith in God's mercy for her spiritual concerns. We know that because as we've read through Isaiah, we've seen that Israel as a nation went to the temple regularly on the Sabbath, went through, you know, experienced worship on the Sabbath. Israel offered animal sacrifices, which was a picture of how God would forgive sins regularly, faithfully. Israel kept the food laws. Israel celebrated the special feast days. So we know that there was some kind of faith in, in concerning spiritual concerns that Israel had towards God. So, so that's the picture of her, her life. But, but what about the rest of her life? What was going on in the rest of her life? And we know that at this time she had some geopolitical concerns. That's why I put that geopolitical box in there. So she had some geopolitical concerns. Here's what was going on. Okay, here's Assyria right here. Big old massive empire. And Assyria was on the move, destroying, 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 moving down towards Israel here. So Assyria was marching, 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 and they were leaving destruction in their wake, and they were headed towards Israel. And so what did Israel do? Here Israel has these geopolitical concerns, and so what did Israel do? Well, okay, there's Assyria to the northeast ready to invade, but down here is Egypt, friendly Egypt, Powerful Egypt, lots of chariots, lots of horses, lots of, you know, soldiers. So what Israel did was made an alliance with Egypt. They said, let's you and I make a treaty together, an alliance together. If Assyria attacks us, you'll defend us. If Assyria attacks you, we'll defend you. They made a treaty together. Okay, so Israel, as you can see from the picture, has faith in God for spiritual concerns and is taking other steps to take care of her geopolitical concerns. When it comes to spiritual concerns, faith in God. When it comes to spirit, uh, geopolitical concerns, other steps. Okay? You might think, sounds fine. little geopolitical maneuvering here. Sounds like it makes sense. It's not what God says about what they've done, though. Look at Isaiah 30, verses 1 and 2. Ah, stubborn children declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, who make an alliance, but not of my spirits, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. This is what God says about their geopolitical steps. So, what they're doing and making that agreement with Egypt, that was not God's plan for her. This is not what God's spirit wanted her to do. And in making this geopolitical plan, God says they've added sin to sin because they haven't asked God for his direction. God wanted to take care of her geopolitical concerns. Israel distrusted God for her spiritual concerns, took matters in her own hands for her geopolitical concerns. Okay, now think about your life. So there's this misunderstanding that lots of people have today that trusting Jesus means you trust him for spiritual concerns. Forgiveness, going to heaven, not going to hell. And, and faith doesn't have much to do with the other areas of your life. So just think about your own, you know, what's happening in your own heart. 
Okay, we're trusting Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. That's vital. We're trusting his death on the cross alone to pay for us so we can be in heaven for, with him forever. That's vital. But here's the question. How often do we not ask God for what his plans are about our work, for example? How often do we, just like Israel, not ask God for what his directions are in terms of our marriage, our finances, our entertainment, issues like that? How often do we not ask God about those areas? See, as if we're doing that, if we're trusting him for spiritual concerns and not asking about these other areas, we're doing exactly what Israel was doing. Do you see that? So what's going to happen to Israel as a result of this? Do we look like Israel when it comes to our faith? What's going to happen to Israel as a result of this? Look at Isaiah 31, verse 1. So God says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt. Are you there? Isaiah 31, 1. I'm hearing pages turning. Okay, he says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many. This is Egyptians' chariots who trust in Egyptians' chariots because they are many and in Egyptians' Egypt's horsemen, because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. So Israel has a part of her life where she has great concerns geopolitically, but in that area, she's not looking to the Lord. She's not consulting the Holy One of Israel. That's what Israel is doing here. She's looking elsewhere for help in that category. In other words, she's trusting something besides God for that category. Trusting God for some things, trusting something else for other things. And so what does God say about that? It's the word woe. Anybody else's version translate the word woe with a different word? Anybody have a different version? No? Some, some of the uh, like, like paraphrases like alas, lament. Okay, the word woe in Hebrew is a sad, that's, that's an understatement, it's a heartbroken expression of the tragedy of the judgment that's coming. That's what woe is. It's a heartbroken, weeping, sobbing, horrifying punishment is coming. And so because Israel is not trusting God for the geopolitical part of their lives, God speaks to them woe, lament and sadness, heartbrokenness because of the punishment that God's going to bring them. Even though she's had some sort of faith in God about her spiritual concerns, the fact that she wasn't trusting God for her geopolitical concerns caused God to speak woe to them. And now why? I mean, Israel was trusting God for spiritual concerns. Why would God be so concerned about these other areas? What's so serious about not trusting God for geopolitical concerns? Why is that so serious? Look at Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. This is one of the most important verses in Isaiah. It's vital to understand the New Testament as well, and so we want to just dig into this verse. But start with verse 14 to get the flow of thought. Isaiah 28, starting in verse 14. Look at what God says. It says, Isaiah speaking, Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, I just got a comment, Isaiah is going to describe them having made a covenant with Egypt, but he's going to describe it in an ironic, maybe a sarcastic way. So listen to what he says. Because you, Jerusalem, because you've said, 
we've made a covenant with death. Now, that's not how they would have described it, but that's what, in essence, it was because they were turning from God. So, because you've said, we've made a covenant with death, Isaiah calls it, and with Sheol, we've made an agreement, death, then when the overwhelming whip, Assyria's coming, passes through, it will not come to us. For we've made lies our refuge. That's not how they would have described it, but that's what it was. And in falsehood, we've taken shelter. Not how they would have described it, but that's what it was in fact. So because, verses 14 and 15, because you leaders made an agreement with Egypt, verse 16, therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. So here's why Israel was wrong. It's because God has laid out before them. He's laid out before them a precious cornerstone as a foundation. He's given them a foundation for their entire lives. Okay, now, what does that mean? Laid in Zion, a precious cornerstone. Okay, first of all, it means that God's given them a foundation for every part of their lives. Notice he calls it a foundation. I'm the one who's laid as a foundation in Zion. It's a foundation. Okay, Dave Strauss does a lot of foundation pouring with cement work, right? If you're building a house, and if I, if I give you the foundation for the house you're building, here's your foundation, I would be puzzled if I came back and, and like the bathroom was built on the foundation, but the rest of the house was built over here in quicksand, right? If I'm giving you a foundation for your house, nicely poured, thick, Dave Strauss quality work right there, I'd come back and expect to see your whole house built on that foundation, Right? God says, I've given you the foundation for your entire lives. Every part of your life, I'm calling to have you build on this foundation. So what is the foundation that every part of their life should be built on? It's that last phrase in verse 16. Here's what the foundation is. It's the truth. Whoever believes will not be in haste. What does that mean? That means that in in every part of your life, what God wants you to do is believe. It's the Hebrew word for faith, for trust. In every part of your life, God wants to work on your behalf and help you. And he wants you to trust him, believe in him for that area of your life. And if you will believe, this is the foundation for every part of your life. Oh, this is, church, this is amazing news because you've got some areas of your life. I've got some areas of my life that don't feel like they're built on a very solid foundation right now. But the reality is, God says, look, if you will trust me for that area of your life, he who believes will not be shaken. He's saying, Israel, if you would have trusted me for your geopolitical concerns, you would not be in haste. That means you'd not be stressed. You'd not be panicked. You'd be at peace. You'd be strong. You'd be full of hope. You would know. My God is in control. He's bringing good things. He will deliver me. He will work. You'd know that. So the foundation for every part of life is he who believes, he who trusts God for this area. God will work. He'll work in that area. And you will not be in haste. You'll not be stressed. You'll not be panicked. You'll not be fretting. You'll be at peace. Now notice, 
This foundation is tested. It's a tested cornerstone, which means nothing can change it. Nothing can weaken it. Nothing can undermine it. It's like a slab of concrete, a hundred miles deep and a thousand miles wide. And like you could kick it and it'd be your foot that would get the worst end of the bargain. Right? Nothing can make God's foundation of faithfulness change. It's been tested all through the Old Testament. Abraham built his life on this foundation. Tested, yes. God was faithful every time Abraham turned to him. Isaac tested this foundation. God was faithful. David shows how powerful and faithful this foundation is. So it's tested. And notice that this foundation is a precious cornerstone. It's of infinite value because like a cornerstone lines up the dimensions of the foundation. When you line your life up completely with this cornerstone, trusting God for every part of your life, not just spiritual concerns, but every part of your life, you trust God for every part of your life. You line your life up with the cornerstone. Blessing will come. Peace will come. Salvation will come. Restoration will come. God will touch that area of your life and redeem that area of your life. He will work in that area of your life. Precious cornerstone. Okay, so here's what this means for us. See, you've got your life and you've got all these parts of your life and you've got work, marriage, parenting, entertainment, health, finances, kids, I don't know if you have any geopolitical concerns or not, spiritual concerns. So here's your life. And you need to find a foundation on which to build your life. Right? And whether you're following Jesus Christ or not this morning, there's some other foundation that you've chosen to build your life on. Right? You you, you can't build a building without a foundation. Right? It's either a good one or a bad one. Okay, and so you look around all the different things you could build your foundation on. So there's like there's a big old hunk of quicksand over here. Okay, and then there's like some sandy gravel over here. And there's some like mud flats over here. And where am I going to build my life? And the good news is God has laid the foundation for your life. His faithfulness will be the rock solid foundation for every part of your life. As every part of your life is resting in his promises. Is if in every part of your life you're trusting his faithfulness. You're surrendering that area of your life to him. You will not be in haste. See some of you are like really in haste this morning. You may not have put it in those words. But you're stressed. Right? You're discouraged, you're fretting, you're panicked, you're worried. But he who believes, if you will take that area of your life and rest it in God's rock solid faithfulness, he will go to work in that area of your life. He will change that area of your life. His saving power gloriously applies to your spiritual concerns, but not just to your spiritual concerns. His saving power will transform your sexuality, it'll transform your finances, it'll transform your marriage and your parenting and your workplace and your friendships and your hobbies and everything will transform. You see that? This is amazing news. Okay, so ask yourself, what is the foundation for your marriage? Just think about your marriage, for example. There's only two alternatives. Either either you found your marriage on God and his faithfulness and who he promises to be to you, or you'll found it on something else, which means it'll be founded on lies, quicksand, mud. But if you will found your marriage on God's faithfulness and let his promises of protection 
and heart satisfaction and guidance and strength and comfort. Let his promises fill your heart so that you can love your wife, your husband, and forgive and not hold grudges and serve and care. And then as you, as you trust his commands for your marriage, so you men, you lay your life down for your wife figuratively, maybe Literally, but at least figuratively speaking, you're serving your wife, you're serving your kids, you're, you're sharing the scriptures with your wife, you're praying with your wife, you're providing for your family. As you say, God, help me to do this. I'm feeling weak. I'm feeling like I can't do this, which is very common for all of us men, right? He will come in and strengthen you and help you. He who believes will not be in haste and God will bring his power upon you and he will transform you as a husband. He will transform you as a wife and your marriage will start to be transformed. Or any other area of your life as well. Okay, so now we're asking, why was it so wrong for Israel to just trust God for her spiritual concerns and not trust God for her geopolitical concerns? Can you see now why it was so wrong? It's because what God has laid out for them is a foundation for their whole life. God's power is not limited to your spiritual concerns. God's power will transform every other area of your life. The foundation is for all of your life. He wants you to trust him completely. And that's why because of Israel's refusal to trust him for her geopolitical concerns, what was coming was woe. Look at verse 17. <laughs> it's like God has a plumb line lined up with the cornerstone of this foundation of whoever believes will not be in haste. Israel, are you trusting me for every area? Look at verse 17. I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line, and Israel will have failed that evaluation, and so hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter, figurative speaking, of the judgment that's coming to her. And then one more verse, look at verse 22, for the judgment. Now therefore do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. So that's why what Israel did was so wrong. And that's why the judgment is coming. Okay, now what does this mean for us? First of all, let me show you what Peter says about this cornerstone. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. You need to understand that the apostles of the New Testament loved Isaiah 28, 16. And look at what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. This is fascinating. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 6. Oh, it's, it's page 1014 in the Bible you just passed out. Okay, 1014. Look at what Peter says. As you come to him, speaking of Jesus from the previous verses, you can pick that up. As you come to Jesus Christ... A living stone. Hmm. A living stone. Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture... And then he quotes Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, 
And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Okay, now the reason that that wording is a little bit different, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame instead of will not, uh, will not be in haste, is because the apostles quoted from what's called the Septuagint. Okay, fancy word. Um, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. The original Isaiah 28, 28, 16 was written in Hebrew originally. That's what God gave Isaiah to write. Isaiah wrote it because he spoke Hebrew, wrote Hebrew. Then, hundreds of years later, uh, Jewish people thought, you know, most Jewish people are speaking uh, Greek now, so we want to have their Bible in their own language. So they translated from the Hebrew into Greek. This is just like a translation you have in your hand. It means the same thing, though. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Which means that the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone that God laid out for us as the foundation for all of our lives. Now here's how this works. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints they could see that God was faithful. They could see that they should trust God for every area of their lives. They could see God working in Abraham's life and Isaac's life and David's life. They could see these things, but nowhere near as clearly as we can see now embodied in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the cornerstone. He embodies in himself the truth that every area of your life, if you'll trust God, you'll not be in haste. He will go to work. He will help you. So, for example, through Jesus' death, if you're wondering, how can me, how can I as a sinful person build my life on the foundation of God's faithfulness? Isn't God going to judge me? And the answer is no, because Jesus died to pay for sins. So come as you are, as sinful as you are. Ask God to change you. Trust Jesus Christ in his death on the cross. Lay your life down before him, and he will say, come and lay your life on the foundation. So Jesus' death shows us this. Jesus' resurrection shows us that he's alive, which means that in every area of your life today, the resurrected Jesus, if you will turn and trust him and ask him to work and surrender that area of your life to him, the resurrected Jesus Christ will go to work and will transform that area of your life. He will change it. You'll be at peace. You'll be strong. doesn't mean every trial will go away. But you will be clothed in his peace and in his strength and in his confidence and in his surety. You will know God's with you. You'll be able to move ahead, even in the midst of a trial, strong and established. Because of Jesus Christ. You can see that his resurrection. He's alive today, ready to go to work. So the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. He embodied in his life, death, and resurrection the truth that whoever believes will not be in haste. God is so full of power, so full of love, it's displayed in Jesus that in every area of your life, if you will trust him, you will see him going to work. Now, there's one other truth. There's lots more that I could say about 1 Peter 2, 4 through 6. But the first is that Jesus is the cornerstone. But then second, notice also, verse 4, that Jesus as the living stone is rejected by men. You need to understand that if you're going to build your life on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, then you're going against the grain of Silicon Valley culture. Right? You're going against the grain. Now, you will have people who will see your life as you're building it on Jesus Christ, and they will see the fruit of that blossoming in different areas of your life, and they will say, that's awesome. Tell me about Jesus. And they will, they will build their lives upon Jesus Christ, too. You'll see that happen with people at your workplace and in your neighborhoods. You'll see that happen. 
there will also be people who see you building your life on Jesus Christ who will say, I reject that. Not interested, like Marsha's sister at first. Okay, but then just wait. Okay, so building your life on Jesus Christ, we need to understand that he's rejected by men. But that's okay. That's okay. You build your life on Christ, people around you can just scoff and not be understood. But you know, you're building your life on the living stone that is choice and precious in God's sight. And he's the one that matters, right? He's all that matters. So what, what this means for us is God's calling us to build every part of our lives on the truth that whoever trusts in God will not be in haste. Whoever trusts, you trust your every area, Every area of your life to who he is as he's revealed in Jesus Christ, his death, resurrection, his life, death, and resurrection. You trust your life entirely to Jesus Christ. That's what God calls us to do. So see, get this. Saving faith is not just trusting Jesus for your spiritual concerns. Saving faith means trusting your life to Jesus Christ. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. It means trusting Jesus with who you are, all of who you are. You trust yourself to him. That's what saving faith means. Can I take just three areas and, and just kind of make a couple of comments? Start off with the work. Okay, you work. Either you work, you know, some of you work in the house. We know that's the hardest work. Those of you moms who work in the house, others of you, right, people are working 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week. All of you are working. Now here's the question. Are you trusting Jesus Christ with your work? Remember in, in real estate once, somebody had just met the Lord when I was back in real estate, and it, it never dawned on this person that, that he could pray about like his real estate work. And it was an amazing thing for him to realize, so I can pray about my real estate work too? Absolutely. God wants to work in your real estate work. He wants to work in every area of your life. So are you trusting Jesus Christ for your work? Are you coming before him and trusting his promises so that you're, you're strengthened in him as you're in the workplace? You can trust he will give you the wisdom you need to deal with this problem. He will give you the grace you need to deal lovingly with this person. Are you trusting his promises? I remember real estate again. What a huge difference it made to me when I would go around knocking on doors, being confident that God was going to use this to provide for us. And so you're working hard, but you're at peace versus when I was knocking on doors, not thinking God was going to provide for us, thinking I've got to make some money here, you know, and then you're kind of grinding people and you're kind of being pushy with people. You guys get that at all? Anyway, there's a world of difference between working with confidence in God's promises to guide, to enable, to provide, to help. You're not on your own at the workplace, guys, right? Now, one other just thought here. You have to understand that your work as, as an accountant, maybe, or as a waiter, or as an engineer, or a business owner, whatever you might be, your work in those fields is just as holy and set apart to God as my work as a pastor. You understand that? Do you understand that? This is so important. It's not like, well, the really, the really obedient people become pastors, and the rest of us, we kind of, no, 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 no. Okay, I was a real estate agent for four years. That was obeying Christ. And then when he told me to quit, I quit. Okay, and you, I trust, are doing what you're doing out of obedience to Christ. If you're not, talk to him about it. Ask him what you, maybe he, any whatever, but ask him. So your work is just as holy 
just as sacred, just as full of opportunity to glorify God as my work is. So trust your work to Christ and, and trust his commands in the workplace. Work hard. Do the very best you can in everything you do. Oh, but it's never noticed. It'll never all be noticed. Hello? Listen, is your work ever all noticed? Anybody out there? It all is because God notices and he's the one who counts. He notices every bit. You will never have your boss notice everything you do. If you're living for that, you will never work to your full excellence. God is looking upon you as you're doing that accountant work. Smiling. Because as you work excellently, that'll show people around you who Jesus Christ is. Now will open doors for the gospel. So work hard. Don't be a slacker. Okay, work hard. All right, that's work. How about entertainment? I mean, entertainment is a huge part of our culture today. Are you building the entertainment component of your life upon Jesus Christ? You ever thought about that? Now, God wants you to feel relax and enjoy and have some fun, right? He's for that. But are you trusting Christ in the way that you pursue entertainment? So how would you do that? Here's what I heard Matt Chandler say once. Matt Chandler, pastor back in Texas, Acts 29 pastor. Uh, I wrote it down. He said, the question he always asks is, is this entertainment strengthening or weakening my closeness with Jesus Christ? Are the images that I'm looking at drawing me to Jesus Christ or pulling me from Jesus Christ? Are the jokes that I'm laughing at honoring to God and his creation or is it kind of mocking of God and his creation? Right? See, here's, here's the deal. Jesus Christ is your all-satisfying treasure. Your highest joys are found in him. So why waste your time and entertainment that's going to weaken your all-satisfying joy? Why would you do that? Does that make any sense? No. So, entertainment. Build entertainment upon Jesus Christ. When you, when you turn that show off, there's just a sense of wholeness. You're in the Lord. Not that it's like whatever the, the religious stations are, which I never watch anyway, but... but it's not that you always got to watch Christian TV all the time by any stretch of the imagination. You get what I'm saying here? Okay. Now, you'll need to work this through with other brothers and sisters. What does this mean? How do you, home groups, you can work that out. One last example. I feel like the Lord wanted me especially to mention this issue of sex and sexuality this morning. Sex is a precious gift given to us from, from God. It's a huge part of our culture, huge part of our culture today. It's a gift given to us from God precious gift to be enjoyed in the context of lifelong marriage between a man and, and a woman. So is the sexual part of your life, you are a sexual being, whether you're married or single, you are a sexual being. Is the sexual part of your life being built upon the foundation, the cornerstone of Jesus Christ? Are you building that there? This is a huge topic. I just want to mention one thing. I have heard of a couple of conversations amongst believers, not anybody here, where the topic came up, is premarital sex part of God's will or not? And what was disturbing to me was that in these conversations, what I heard was that nobody had a clear answer. Believers talking about it. And the reason was because the word premarital sex is not ever in, nor in the Bible, which is true. Okay, the phrase premarital sex is not in the Bible anywhere. 
Okay, I don't want anybody at Mercy Hill Church not to be able to give a clear answer on this question. Okay, so let me, let me show you. Here's, as I've thought about that and how to explain that to people, here's, here's my answer. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. I'm just taking a small slice of this sexuality question. Because if you're single, you need to be rock-solid confident in what your loving, good father is calling you to do in this area. You need to know. Because, baby, if you're wavering on this, you will not survive, right? If you're like, well, maybe, maybe not, uh uh-uh. That's not going to hold you up. Not with the the forces in our culture here. So look at 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. That's page 987, by the way, in the Bibles we passed out. Here's what Paul says. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Okay. What we should abstain from is sexual immorality. That's wrong. Question is, what does that include? Now notice, Paul does not define it for his readers. Interesting. Why would an author use a word and not define it for his readers? It's because his readers already know what the word means. In the Greek culture, if you mentioned the word sexual immorality, which is the Greek word porneia, you would know exactly what was meant. Everybody knew what porneia was. So how can we find out what's included in that word? Well, we look up in an analytical Greek lexicon, okay, written by Timothy Freiberg, Barbara Freiberg, and Neva Miller, and we ask, what did the word porneia mean? And here's what they said. Porneia includes, that is, in the Greek language, if you heard the word porneia, you would think he's talking about every kind of extramarital sexual intercourse. Extra, so what does extramarital mean? Outside of marriage. So would, if I said abstain from, sexual, uh, abstain from sexual immorality, am I asking you to abstain from premarital sex? Yes. It, it's clear. And every time the word sexual immorality is used in the New Testament, and there's numerous times where we're told to not be involved in sexual immorality, every time that's the word that's being used. And so every time it's talking about any sexual involvement outside of the context of lifelong marriage between a man and a woman. Is that clear? Now, see, the problem is if you don't know that that's what the Greek word means for certain sure, you say, well, what's sexual immorality? What does that mean? That's what it means. Okay? Now, understand, God is not a killjoy. Listen, God gave us the gift of sex. What a precious gift of closeness and intimacy and pleasure and fun between a man and a woman who are married in, 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 you know, in, in, in for life. All right? God's not a killjoy. But see, here's the thing. That level of closeness and that level of intimacy is so deep, is so wonderful, is so powerful that it has to be protected by a permanent, lifelong commitment. That's why God gave us such a precious gift protected by the commitment of marriage. Do you see that? Okay. So there's lots more you can work on in terms of what does it mean to, to build your sexuality on what God says in his word, trusting his promises and his commands. I'll let you work on that on your own. But see, some of you, I, I, w- I would guess, maybe maybe many, probably many of us, the the... the, the your past life, before you met the Lord, was built on a foundation of lies when it came to, to your sexuality. 
built on lies. And that area of your life has been harmed. I mean, the house is like in a shambles, right? There's holes in the roof and walls have fallen off. And, you know, anyway, picture a house that has a terrible foundation. It's like, see any of those pictures from Brazil and the flooding? That's what your, your, your house looked like when it came to your sexual life because it wasn't built upon Jesus Christ. Now, here's the good news. As much of a shambles as maybe that part of your life is right now, Jesus says, build that on me. Bring that part of your life as broken as it is. Bring that part of your life to me. Trust me. I'm not going to maybe do like an overnight all of a sudden, bing, everything's fine. But trust me, I will meet you. I will enable you to rebuild that so that your, your mind starts to be transformed. Your desires start to change. Your whole outlook on the sexual, sexual things is transformed. I will meet you. I will change you. I will enable you. I will free you. He's inviting you to build that area and every area of your life upon him. His redeeming power will transform that area and any area of your life, no matter how messed up you think it is. See, we don't do all the rebuilding, okay? We just turn and and rest on the foundation Ask for his help. Take the steps he gives us to take. And by his power, he will redeem and restore our lives. Okay. Uh, man. Like, is there one or two questions? Just in case I, I like overstated something or said something that I didn't really mean to say. Or maybe I did, but it was wrong. Okay, and you want to ask about it? Does, the question is, does the word pornea cover pornography? They didn't have pornography back then. Okay, that's obvious, right? So the question is, by implication, is what you're asking, Colin, would that apply to pornography? And I think it does. Okay, because first of all, you're watching, you're watching some other couple, right, involved in sexual activity. It's like, so is, is, is that sexual activity extramarital? Let's assume that they're married. Doubtful, okay, right? But let's assume that the couple you're watching is married. Why are you watching them? That's extramarital, if they're married, and they're not. Okay, right? So I can't think of any possible way to stretch pornography so that it's not extramarital sexual something. I just, and Jesus says, don't look upon a woman to lust. Okay? And, and so what do you... It's not like a... Anyway, I don't even try to think of what it might be. But it's, it's just wrong. So it's, I, don't, I don't see how that could possibly work. And pornography is a... Pornography is a vicious... Uh, Oh, we, I could talk a lot about that. It's Jesus Christ will redeem and free. I know some of you have been in total bondage to pornography. You've told me, you've talked about it, and Jesus has redeemed you. And I know from some of the brothers here, you would not touch with a 10-foot pole. You've been redeemed, and you're not going back there. It's death. It's death. And God loves the gift of sex between a man and a woman in marriage. Caring for each other, giving to each other, enjoying each other in the context of marriage. How pornography can be, you know, possibly, it just doesn't work. Yeah, the difficulty is that in the Old Testament, there were uh, men who had more than one wife, right? That's the difficulty. And Genesis 2.24, I think, is the ruling principle in the Old Testament. It's monogamy. And so polygamy was not God's will in the Old Testament. And the men who were involved in polygamy were sinning. 
Um, I think you can see that. Genesis 2.24, that's the, the, the ruling principle from the Old Testament, which is repeated in the New Testament. A man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, the two shall become one flesh, period. You don't add another woman in there, so it's the three of you become one flesh, right? And then four. Now, there were men in the Old Testament who, who had more than one wife, and the Bible doesn't say this is wrong explicitly in the immediate context of that, but I think Genesis 2.24 makes that clear. So... I mean, that's another topic that probably would take a long, it would deserve a longer answer than that. New Testament's crystal clear on monogamy. The question is, the, the question is why, how, how do we understand the Old Testament, the fact that some of these men had more than one wife, and there's no explicit condemnation of it in the immediate context? Okay, I want us to pray. And you might be overwhelmed thinking, okay, I've got all these areas of my life, many even more than I put up on the page here, and, and like, where should I start? I would encourage you to start with one. One area, um, and you may already know which one that is that God wants you to start on. But if you don't know, ask yourself, which one are you the most stressed about? Okay, because he who believes will not be in haste. And so if you're stressed about an area, you're probably not resting that in Jesus Christ, his love for you, his care for you. And so, so start there. And, and church, what I want you to, to, to walk away with is that in every area of your life, Jesus Christ will redeem that area. He will work in that area. His power, his resurrection power will transform that area. He will. He will. He's the foundation. And if you will trust him and surrender that area to him and say, please, come and help me. And you start to trust his promises for that area. Start to trust his commands for that area. His redeeming power will go to work and you will see fruit in that area. You will see change in that area. Every area. There's no area of your life that he won't transform. So let's stand. I want to pray this over us. We all, Lord, this morning have areas of our lives where we need to, to rest them more in you and, and, and bring them to be built upon your foundation and, and trust you for them. We all have areas. And I just pray that right now, Lord, you would give us strong confidence in you, strong faith in Jesus Christ, that as we bring these areas to you, you will redeem them. What a glorious God you are. Thank you that you don't just transform spiritual concerns, but you will transform the workplace and you'll transform marriages and you'll transform parenting and finances and sexuality and entertainment and hobbies and health in every area, Lord. You will work in every area. Again, we know it doesn't mean that you'll take all the difficulties away that you will transform us in every area so that we're at peace, we're strong, we're full, we're content, we're satisfied in you, we're glorifying your name. Oh, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see your power to do that in every area. Thank you, Father, for giving us Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, the precious cornerstone foundation of our lives, that every area of our lives can be rested upon your Holy Son. And life will burst forth in every area. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.